You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. In this episode, I would say for the clinician, a simple definition of chorioamnionitis as fever equal or greater than 100 will permit early identification of a population at high risk of subsequent neonatal complications. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Cecilia Avila on behalf of her co-authors to discuss their upcoming study, Usefulness of Two Clinical Chorioamnionitis Definitions in Predicting Neonatal Infectious Outcomes, a Systematic Review. Dr. Avila is a clinical assistant professor in obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Stony Brook Medicine in New York, USA. Clinical chorioamnionitis affects 1.3 to 13% of term births with higher rates in preterm births. Chorioamnionitis is associated with an increased risk of neonatal infectious morbidity and thus leads to neonatal diagnostic and therapeutic interventions following an antenatal or intrapartum maternal diagnosis. The diagnosis of chorioamnionitis is typically made based on clinical criteria and various criteria have historically been employed. In this systematic review, the authors investigated two criteria for chorioamnionitis, maternal fever alone versus maternal fever with an additional criteria. These criteria included maternal or fetal tachycardia, uterine tenderness, foul-smelling amniotic fluid, or maternal leukocytosis. In term patients, those with the fever-only criteria were found to have rates of neonatal infectious outcomes of 1.3%, compared to 0.7% without fever, while the rate of neonatal infectious outcome was 3.3% using the fever plus one criteria. At term, the odds ratio for neonatal infectious outcome was 1.9 using the fever alone criteria, while the odds ratio was 4.0 using fever plus one criteria. Both were statistically significant. Similar associations were noted in studies that included preterm neonates. Overall, both chorioamnionitis definitions were associated with neonatal infectious outcome risk, with the fever with a second criteria demonstrating a twofold increased risk of neonatal infectious outcome compared to fever alone. Dr. Avila, thank you very much for joining us today to discuss this great paper and systematic review. Thanks for inviting us and giving the opportunity to share our research. Can you describe or talk to our audience some about what your motivations were for designing this study? Well, I think there were several reasons. One, in our institution, we have three sets of providers. We have community OBGYNs, we have hospital faculty OBGYNs, and also we have a midwifery service. It appears that each group of providers use different temperature thresholds for the diagnosis of chorioamnionitis. One particular group requires that the temperature will be elevated at least one hour apart. And the incorporation of um, Gibbs criteria also vary among these three groups of providers. 
Some people requires that at least one criteria, some people two or more, and other providers just feel that the diagnosis is supposed to be made based on fever alone. And also, I think our neonatal intensive care unit providers were kind of puzzled with our kind of different criteria for the diagnosis. And at some point, they were trying to get from us consistency because the time we make diagnosis of chorionitis, that is an indicator for admission to the intensive care unit in our institution. So how is chorionitis typically defined? We're trying to look in the literature what the definition of chorionitis were, and everybody seems to refer to the original definition by Dr. Gibbs in, in the 1981 article of American Journal OBGYN. It was in the article with American Journal OBGYN uh, where the leading author was Joder. And at the time, the definition was oral temperature greater than 100 Fahrenheit, but they also needed to be two criteria, maternal tachycardia greater than 100, fetal tachycardia greater than 160, uterine tenderness, fall amniotic fluid, or maternal leukocytosis defining at white blood cells greater than 15,000. What is interesting enough is in that paper, everybody who was called intramniotic infection also had a positive culture of amniotic fluid. So it's probably the stricter criteria ever used. Subsequent publications kind of modified this criteria and some people use at least one criteria, some people use more than one criteria, and some people use different temperature thresholds. The original FRG is greater than 100, but other papers were using greater than 100.4. And also other articles included placenta pathology, so either the clinical criteria or placenta pathology or added placenta pathology. So it became that the definition had kind of varied extensively among researchers, and that also was probably a reason why outcomes were different. What we decided is, okay, let's kind of try to do a systematic review or at least try to be consistent. Dr. Avila, given that there are various different definitions of chorioamnionitis, what do you think are some of the effects or the downstream implications of having multiple different criteria for diagnosing chorioamnionitis? Well, the, the admission rates to the NICU are, will be different at different institutions for chorioamnionitis. Cost of those admissions may vary. We use only the criteria of fever, you definitely are going to identify a larger population of babies, but also you are going to have a lot of false positive cases that are going to be brought to the intensive care unit with the risk that that might imply. And also, if you go to the other extreme, you know, when you expect to have at least temperature elevated twice and you expect to be 101 and the two criteria gives, you might bring sicker babies to the intensive care unit. So, you know, cost might be, um, you know, the, the, the chief of cost might be towards sicker babies in those cases. So that's not having a specific criteria. That's probably where we have all these rates on neonatal infection outcomes that vary so largely among studies. Once you make the intrapartum or antenatal diagnosis of chorioamnionitis, how do you typically manage that up to delivery? 
Well, we administer ampicillin and gentamicin until delivery, and subsequently we add clindamycin. Some people may feel that doing antibiotics post-delivery might not be as necessary to decrease maternal infection. We really, in terms of maternal infection, we look into decrease the postpartum complications of endometritis and wound infection. But if the woman delivered by C-section, we definitely are going to add antibiotics. Let's clear postpartum, let's clear after a vaginal delivery. There are more studies out there that demonstrate that might not be necessary. What are the implications for the baby once this diagnosis is made? That's a good question. First of all, if the baby already is, is a case of GBS positive baby and we expected that this baby is already be on antibiotics, we had to uh, typically add gentamicin and switch to ampicillin. And we know this baby is going to be at risk. And depending on the institution and Ali uh, or providers and where there is no uniform criteria, you are going to have the neonatal intensive care unit taking care of the baby and, of course, taking away the baby away from mom. Now, there are institutions where everybody who get the diagnosis of chorionionitis, babies who get, whose mom had the diagnosis for chorionionitis and the baby has no respiratory compromise, is hemodynamically stable, is being managed with antibiotics in the nursery that probably is the most probably effective cost approach. So given it sounds like since there's a wide variety of different definitions of chorionionitis, there may be implications for how the neonate is treated and the mom is treated both pre and post delivery. What were the specific aims of your systematic review in terms of addressing these issues? We wanted to analyze studies where at least the definition of acute chorionitis was either fever alone or fever plus at least one gives criteria. And then we wanted to know if was any difference in perinatal infection outcomes. And those were defined as early onset of sepsis, as culture-proven bacteremia, meningitis, or pneumonia. And I know people say, well, pneumonia and RDS may go by hand by hand, but we want to specifically take an account where the diagnosis of pneumonia is entertained because respiratory distress syndrome could be due to infections or non-infection causes. Can you describe how your systematic review is sort of put together and what the key components of a systematic review are rather than just a review paper? Well, let's see. What we did in the systematic review, we set up a protocol at the beginning, we follow, I think, the most, pro- the most guidelines. And then we use some articles, because there were so many articles to review um, at the beginning, the screening phase, we kind of set up cap agreements. We asked people to review the data and then figure out where there were cap agreement. And then there was disagreement. We went back because there were too many articles to screen. And then after the article, we wanted to have a, you know, a cap agreement close to 70%. One, we reached that cap agreement. And then people review articles because we, were, we really started with a high volume articles. It was around, we went practically 533 articles. And then when we 
we've selected the articles that were more likely to be included in the in the systematic review. Two of us used those articles to obtain the information and then do a crossover examination of the data. And then one of our collaborators, Matthew Jackson, he analyzed the data using the R software. That's pretty much, you know, we manage all the data that was related to, we obtain um, demographics, we obtain intrapartum events, and we obtain perinatal outcomes. Most, because we're focused in the perinatal outcomes, most of those articles really didn't have maternal data. And then they are, they, we generated old ratios and then old ratios of old ratios to compare uh, the different groups. Can you outline the key findings that you had from your study? Well, the incident of neonatal infection outcomes was 0.7 in the non-choreomyonitis, acute choreomyonitis group, and 1.3 in the acute choreomyonitis group. Then we divided those among term studies and PPROM studies. We have, in the, among the term studies, we have one study that was term fever, fever alone, and two term studies where it was fever plus at least one gives criteria. And we were incidents in the fever alone was 0.8 in the non-ACC groups and 3.3 in the acute choreomyonitis group. So in the fever plus one, we have an old ratio of four. Then when we got the old ratio of old ratio uh, was 2.1. So overall means that people who had fever plus at least one criteria of GIFs had a 2.1 old ratio uh, with a kind of very tight confidence interval was 1.3 to 3.3. And the P-prone fever, the incidence of acute choreomyonitis and neonatal infection outcomes in cases where there was no clinical choreomyonitis was 12.8, where with clinical choreomyonitis was 40.3. The old ratio was 5.9 for the two fever studies, 11.8 for the two fever studies. The ratio or the old ratio was two also, however, the confidence interval was wider, was 0.5 to 8.4. So it seems like the more criteria that you use for making the diagnosis, the higher the odds of there being uh, some objective measure of neonatal infectious outcome. Yeah, it's, yeah it seems to be an old ratio. In, in both groups, seems to be an old ratio of two. We also have studies that were kind of mixed studies where people, where we have 10 pretend pre-promers. We couldn't calculate the old ratio because it was kind of a less homogeneous population. So there was a trend, but we felt that was not appropriate to calculate old ratio. And we couldn't do a meta-analysis because the problem is the autogenicity of the studies. It was too, you know, we tried to use the best possible risk evidence. We just couldn't. It was just the meta-analysis didn't seem to be appropriate because the majority of the acute choreomyonitis studies were small had different variety of designs and study populations. So that's the reason we stay with the systematic review. So how would you recommend using the information from your study in a clinical approach to chorioamnionitis? I would say for the clinician, a simple definition of chorioamnionitis as fever equal or greater than 100 will permit early identification of a population a high risk of subsequent neonatal complications. 
However, it doesn't mean all these babies need to go to neonatal intensive care unit. I think there is a role to manage some of these babies in the regular nursery. I honestly seem to agree with the approach that Jackson had in uh, they have in Texas is giving antibiotics to these kids. I think because they are at risk, you have at least a ratio that is twice if you have fever alone compared to not having fever at all. What they do in Texas is they give antibiotics, intramuscular antibiotics, to newborns whose gestational age are 36 weeks at birth and weeks greater than 2,100 grams, not requiring cardiorespiratory monitoring or respiratory support. And I think until we have large data sets that allow us to be able to extrapolate to the general population, I think that this will be a reasonable approach. So it sounds like one of the things you might be advocating, I'm not sure you're saying take it from this data, but one area that you might either look at future research or use this information to say that rather than a yes-no definition of chorioamnionitis, we may be able to use criteria to assess a higher risk or a lower risk neonatal population and then direct outcome or admission or workup or evaluation based on the criteria for your diagnosis of chorioamnionitis. That's definitely very reasonable. I think I'm just kind of a little biased towards the approach with Jackson. Uh, maybe it's my own bias, to be honest, but that is reasonable. I think the problem is we don't have data sets at this point that allow us to identify risk factors. And, you know, we can do risk factors, we can do intra-apartment events, like the use epidural. I'm sure there are plenty of articles out that use epidural, but they didn't have the fever in cases where I was unable to extract case, the cases of cardiomyonitis and even it was an article I couldn't include and it was very, very well done study. But when I contacted the author, they didn't know if the babies who were to the NICU were diagnosed with neonatal infection outcomes. So I think we need very large data sets to be able to extrapolate to the general population, and I think as long as we don't have this data set, you know, it would be much, the approach would be much more like you mentioned. We have to give the provider the opportunity to watch those babies closely, don't ignore them, but I don't think every baby who is diagnosed, with, whose mom is diagnosed chorionitis needs to be in the intensive care unit. What are some of the limitations of your review and of systematic reviews in general? The problem with the systematic reviews is that sometimes you have to, as you look into a specific outcome, sometimes you have to use, kind of, you get biased because you have used the data of studies that really answer your question. And that will be better designed studies sometimes, but if they don't, they don't specifically answer your question, you wish you can, the authors give data sets and that you'll be able to say, you know, I have this specific question, how can access to that? And for whatever reason, that is not possible. Sometimes you can't have access to, you know, no, nobody can review those records because the study is closed and IRB is not allowed to do it. So you can limit the studies that have minimal information, very data, few data points that you need to have, and you can eliminate those studies that are very well designed. In particular, you know, at this in this particular, there was the heterogeneity of available studies. There were variations in the reported for the breakdown of neonatal infection outcomes, gestational age, membrane status, and the mixed population studies. And I couldn't generalize these results, particularly to pretend labor and intact membranes. Also, everybody talks about the role of epidural anesthesia and intrapartum fever, but as mentioned, I was unable to 
analyze because some people say, well, 20% of women got it, but I don't know if that 20% of women really had the cardiomyelitis or not. So we couldn't have that detailed information. Also, one issue is the incidence of clinical acute cardiomyelitis might be affected over time. We do universal screening for and treatment for GBS. Some of the studies that we included were done before the universal treatment for intrapartum cardiomyelitis. Of course, most cases of cardiomyelitis are subclinical. So do you have plans for any follow-up studies? Actually, I have a student right now. It's from Colombia. Uh, it's a woman who uh, is doing her MPH, and we're doing, unfortunately, retrospective right now, but we're looking at our data, and we are looking all the cases were admitted to the NICU. Unfortunately, the controls are it's also NICU admissions for other reasons. And we had to assume that the babies who went with the mom in the nursery, they didn't have cardiomyelitis because otherwise they have been brought to the, to the nursery. And we are looking at, this, at all the variables that, you know, the intrapartum events, postpartum events. And, you know, we have preliminary, we have pilot study that the higher the temperature threshold, the sicker the baby is, something that is. That's, again, this is preliminary so far. We look into really, really... Um, See, we can establish really. It's a, it's a we're when trying in these retrospective studies. Is it really a trying to establish a narrow C curve and see is it a temperature which you really must have to admit the baby to the intensive care unit? There are limitations on that study because of being retrospective, but that has been our goal. Also, we think in the future probably it's going to be some role for um, microbiomics. And uh, microbiomics maybe doing um, vaginal or rectal microbiomics, maybe the day of admission for delivery. I think changes in the flora, prolonged labors might be also a factor, and we're looking into it. In your conclusions in your paper, you advocate for a large repository or database of pregnancies complicated by chorioamunitis. Can you discuss that a little bit? Well, I think having larger data sets will really allow us to really probably establish what is really the threshold for temperature. We don't even have it. People take temperature, some people take rectally, some people take axillary, some people oral. So we don't even have a standard how we take the temperature. So even with that, with minimal criteria, and also, you know, we need to document all the intrapartive events and postpartive events, and we might be able to, this sort to be the case, and say, okay, these are the risk factors for this baby. This baby might be at risk, at risk for chorioamnionitis or effects of chorioamnionitis in the mother. But I think that if we were to have those large cases, the large data set, we might be able to identify really who needs to go to the intensive care unit. There's also an issue like what are the long-term effects of chorioamnionitis, and although there are great studies out there looking at effect on um, cerebral palsy, and um, those are kind of population studies and may some best certificate, but not really cases where you really got the baby and you follow prospectively. I think cases done on birth certificates don't really give the specifics of each patient, so it's hard to get the variables that are really remain in a model to all this, the cases being analyzed, and that might really what we need to identify. So it sounds like your takeaway message from this study is that a single fever is associated with neonatal infectious outcomes and that given the variability in diagnosis and management of clinical chorioamnionitis, 
large data sets that look at more defined neonatal outcomes and longer-term outcomes are needed. Yeah, and also, um, but that data set also need a risk intrapartum pregnancy and intrapartum risk factors. I think we, it's kind of, you know, maybe some of the risks might be relevant, maybe other are not. I know it's always the debate, really, epidural anesthesia has something to do with this or not. And it's just the fever is really secondary to epidural. And I wish I had been able to address that in this systematic review, but people had to be able to report those in the study. So having the large data sets with different institutions would be ideal. Frankly, I have not approach anybody to do it because I'm trying to figure out based on our retrospective study kind of which variables we want to include because people might be a little reluctant to do the larger data set. I think this would require kind of a large investment of money. It might need to be funded. Well, Dr. Avila, thank you very much for your contribution to the American Journal of Perinatology and for joining us today on our podcast. We wish you uh, the best luck as you continue down your research paths here. Thank you so much, and thanks again for the opportunity to share our research with your audience. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.